Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, we're living in a time in which the landscape is changing quickly. Thanks to technology, steady jobs that provided a living for our fathers and grandfathers no longer exist, and jobs that didn't exist 10 years ago are now providing paychecks for hundreds of thousands of people. And even the way we consume has changed in the past 10 years, thanks to streaming digital services and rental services like Uber and Airbnb. But where are these technological trends taking us? How will they shape the future in 10, 20, and even 30 years down the road. Well, my guest today has written a book where he lays out his idea of what the future looks like. His name is Kevin Kelly. He's the founding executive editor of Wired Magazine and the former editor of the Whole Earth Catalog. He's also a consultant on Minority Report as a futurist, and he spent his career thinking and writing about how technology, particularly the web, how it intersects with culture, business, and politics. And in his latest book, The Inevitable, Kevin takes a look at 12 technological forces that are shaping our future and provides a glimpse of what that future might look like. Today on the show, Kevin and I discuss the process he uses in making predictions about the future, the misconceptions he thinks people have about artificial intelligence, why people are likely going to own less stuff in the future, and the business opportunities that will emerge as time marches on. Uh, We also discuss the technological trends that worry Kevin the most. So if you're looking for a roadmap to navigate the brave new world we're entering, you don't want to miss this podcast. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash inevitable. Kevin Kelly, welcome to the show. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited to have you here because uh, you came out with a new book called The Inevitable, um, and it's all about the 12 technological forces that are shaping our future. And before we get into um, the specifics of your book, let's talk about your career in general because it's fascinating. You um, worked for Whole Earth Magazine. You were the founding executive editor of Wired Magazine. So you've been spending your career thinking and writing about technology, particularly the web, and how it's influencing culture, economics, business, law, governments, etc. And oftentimes you make predictions about where you see these trends are going to take us. So I'm curious, as a futurist, as a a prophet, which is a hard job to have, um, what's the process you go through when you you sort of lay out your vision of where these trends are going with technology and how it's going to shape our future? Because it's easy to get wrong. In fact, it's very likely that I'm wrong, um, even today. Um, 
the general rule of thumb would be um, uh, anything specific um, is basically inherently unpredictable. Um, what I'm trying to look at are the, the the kind of the bias, the leaning in technologies which derive from the fact that they're physical systems and that they run according to the law of physics or chemistry and um, that kind of constrains where they can go. So I, I, I look for those biases which will shape the larger form and direction but it, um, and that's all that you can kind of really um, predict. So, so I would say, in a certain sense, um, like uh, a quadruped, four legs on an animal, that's that's something that's inevitable. And just like we have four wheel vehicles, that kind of larger form is inevitable. But you know, the, a particular quadruped, like a zebra, is inherently unpredictable. So, telephones were. Inevitable once you had electricity and wires, but the iPhone was not. Um, the internet was inevitable and would occur on any planet and any political regime once you have telephones, but you know, um, Twitter is not. So, um, what I'm looking for are these um, inherent trends, biases, leanings that are occur in. There are kind of directions, and I'm trying to identify those. And where I look for those is in places where the technology is unsupervised, outlawed, prohibited, or or used uh, unsupervised. You know, by kids. It's it's sort of where you can listen to it, kind of be what it wants to be, and it kind of exhibits. Um, it's true color, so to speak, and you can see this. You can listen to where it wants to lean. So, so that's where I'm looking. I'm looking kind of at the edge of technology to see where the center will go. Right. So you're not like looking for specifics because that's hard to predict. Really. It's impossible to predict. And so, if people want to know, well, is is Apple going to succeed? Will it continue? It's like we cannot tell. Nobody can tell. It's it's there's so many variables that impact on that. You know, business decisions, executive personalities, market weather. That those are inherently unpredictable. But if we can say, um, what's the general directions of say, like you know. Um, mobility or phones in general or screens, then we can do something with that. And that's actually very powerful. So if 40 years ago you had truly believed in Moore's Law that for the next 55 decades computers would get twice as fast and half as cheap every 18 months for the next 50 years. If you truly believe that, that's all you needed to know to you know, make a lot of money, to, to invent lots of things, to bend the culture, to you know, um, harvest tremendous abundance. Just if you just really believed that that was the direction it was going and you kind of you worked on that and that was all you need you didn't know need to know anything about IBM or Apple you just needed to know that every year they would get twice as fast half as cheap in you know half the size and so that was that was the trend that was beginning to show itself back then 
And that's the kinds of things I try to identify in my book. Okay. So let's talk about some of these trends in de um, detail. Um, the first one you talk about is becoming is the trend. Um, what do you mean by that? And how does becoming manifest itself today in our technology? So the, the general large scale trend that that's either a sign of or a subset of is the fact that, you know, beginning at least 50 years ago, we have been moving to a world that's becoming more liquid, more, more about processes rather than products, uh, services rather than products, things that um, are constantly uh, changing, being changed, version numbers. I mean, the idea that, that you buy something is version one and you then you get version two, that's, that's a very contemporary recent idea. Um, and, and the idea that the, the thing itself remains the same and it changes itself over time. It, you know, it gets its updates. It's, it's updated. That also is part of this shift at large scale um, from things that are static and fixed to things that are moving and updatable and becoming something else. And so there is a sense in which everything is mutable, everything is pliable, everything is upgradable. And instead of, you know, trying to produce a fixed product like a car, we think about transportation services. It's like you don't really care what it is. You just want to move from A to B. How you get there is sort of not as important to I mean, what the, 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 the actual form or shape of that is not as important as the other, you know, um, benefits. And so, in general, we're moving away from things that are tangible to the intangible. That's another way of talking about this dematerialization, where the value, the things that we find most valuable, are things that are not fixed in a, um, you know, a, a rigid physical form, but actually more the value is in the intangible aspects. So part of that shift means that one, th that services become more important than products, and two, um, everything is being upgraded all the time. And that's a new, that's a new relationship that we have to um, come to terms with the stuff that we have that that we're in this um, that it's always um, that, that when you buy something you're just going to assume that's going to get better or improved or change I just bought um, an uh, Amazon Echo Dot which is this little thing it's an AI interface basically that you talk to I know that there'll be firmware or updates and the thing will get smarter over time and so I mean in some senses you know, I'm anticipating that. I'm I'm banking on that, and um, the way the cars are going these days, it's not just your phone will upgrade itself. Is that even cars will get these upgrades over time? And we 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 have to understand that because there's also downsides to that, which is that um, if if you don't upgrade everything together, something will break. So when you upgrade one thing, it usually requires that 
everything else in that ecosystem also come along. And so we are kind of in this constant um, state of having to keep, uh, it's like gardening, it's having to keep everything going and weeding and having hygienic purges and cleaning things. And there's this, there's this kind of active gardening uh, approach to things rather than just owning it. And the third way that it changes is, is that it, it forces us, whatever our age is, to be a newbie, a, a perpetual newbie. We're always having to learn, in some cases kind of relearn, um, these basic uh, technoliterary skills where, where, you know, how to use a phone, um, how to use a computer. We think we know today, but there's a you know, massive upgrade or a new platform shift and we have to relearn it or there's a, a very complex software thing and two years later there's they moved the menu and we have to kind of learn again or there's a new brand new um, programming language that we have to learn even though we thought that we had mastered the last one so there is this state of being life long learning uh, of, of always being the newbie and having to start from scratch again. And um, that is going to be the default for everybody in the future where um, it's just not, if you're 60, it's like, even if you're 16, um, you're going to be learning um, something new next year that you didn't have to know the year before. Right. I thought that that last point is, uh, I've even noticed that in my own life, you know, I'm 30 and us 30 year olds often make fun of our parents. Like, oh, why, don't, why don't you get the internet? Like, why don't you get email? Why don't they come over and help you? But like, even now I'm noticing there's like Snapchat, for example, yeah, I, like, tried, like, <laughs> I tried downloading Snapchat. Like, I don't know how this works. And so I'm just like, <laughs> I talked to like these teenagers. Can you guys, can you show me how this works? I, I right, felt right. like parents probably felt. Yeah, exactly. And, and there'll be, you'll like, well, I'm not going to bother with gab or whatever it is. And, you know, and, and, um, you're, you're kind of be opt out things and you'll be seen as kind of old funny daddy because you didn't try You didn't even try and bother to, to try it. And the, will all this constant upgrading, I mean, is this eventually going to lead us to some sort of utopia? And I know everyone thinks utopia sounds great, but like, Whenever I see like utopian futures, I'm like, man, it looks really boring. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why most of the Hollywood movies about the future are all dystopian because um, it's dramatic. It's, um, uh, it makes good storytelling. And in fact, I think the future will be boring uh, because it will work. And um, the, uh, but I don't think it's be utopia. Uh, I, I think it's, as you say, I think it, it uh, if we try to imagine the utopia as everything perfect and static and um, it would not change very much and we'd be totally bored out of our minds. But it also simply doesn't work. That's, that, that's the reality. So, so there's really no fear of it. But I think that it's an incorrect vision of where to aim for. I think a better vision of where to aim or, or, or efforts is what I call protopia, which is this idea that we're just trying to progress, to progress, to to move forward in an incremental, tiny, creeping improvements, and that that minor improvement every year 
when it's compounded over decades or centuries become civilization. So this is a big thing, but we won't even see it really except in retrospect because it's a 1% improvement in the world is drowned out, overwhelmed by the news of disasters and all the other ills that are present. And there are many of them. And a lot of them are actually brought about by the new technology themselves. And so it is hard to see a 1% improvement overall on average. And yet that I think that is, that's something good to aim for is, is that um, if we can keep improving 1% a year on average overall, then we compound that annually and we have something magnificent over the long term. Right. So the Kaizen effect, right? Like, is that from Toyota? The manufacturers improve 1% and then yeah. you get stuck. Right. Um, and as you were talking about that, sort of the, the maintenance and like upgrading, that seems like there's an opportunity for a business, possibly. Absolutely. Um, it used to be an old joke in the very dawns of the software industry, which was software is free, but the manual is $1,000. And that's still true in a certain sense. Um, this is another kind of trend where the, you know you can't stop the copying of things. Copies themselves are ubiquitous, perfect, and basically worthless. And so you have to sell things that you can't copy well. And the the idea of sort of training or guiding or giving guidance to things that are coming that may be free. And, and that the the value, the, the the thing that's in short supply, the, the thing that becomes precious, is the context, the understanding, uh, what to do with it. Um, so yeah, you can get this thing; it costs nothing. But how do you use it? How do you maximize it? How do you bring, make it beneficial to you? That actually may be something you're willing to pay for. Right. All right. So let's talk about the next force, which is um, cognition or cognizing, what you call it. It's artificial intelligence. Cognifying. Cognifying. Right. Artificial intelligence. This is freaking a lot of people out, right? Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking, they're saying that artificial intelligence could possibly be the last invention humans make because it will destroy us. Um, I'm kind of freaked out about it. Uh, We have an Amazon Echo in our family, and it's just really weird to see my kids talk to Alexa. Um, asking her for the weather and asking her for jokes. Um, it is it is sort of weird and uh, discongruous. Um, should people be freaked out about artificial intelligence, like that it's going to destroy all the jobs and it will become sentient and Skynet will born, be born? I, I have divided somewhat arbitrarily these trends into 12. And they're kind of like braided tributaries of a river. You could kind of cut them in different ways. But um, I think by far the most important, the most fundamental, the most disruptive, the most beneficial of all those trends is this cognification, cognifying, which which I use as the word to make things smarter. We have a lot of intellectual, cultural baggage around the idea of artificial intelligence. And the main the main distraction of that word is that we tend to think of it as a human-like intelligence. And one of the things I really try to stress in the book is that AI for various scientific reasons is not like human thinking. The only way you can have human-like thinking is if it runs on human-like tissue. And as these run along other things, the emulation is not perfect because of 
time and space. And therefore, um, these intelligences are different, and that's actually in uh, their benefit. So the reason why we wanted to put an AI into our cars to self-drive is because they are not driving like us. Humans, last year, last 12 months, humans around the world killed one million other humans driving. Humans should not be allowed to drive. We're just terrible drivers. And so um, we want these AIs to drive because they're not being distracted, worrying about whether they left the stove on. They're just driving and they're engineered and optimized to drive well. And But that's kind of, in, it's kind of an inhuman way. Your calculator is inhumanly smart in arithmetic, way smarter than you are. Google is inhumanly smart in its uh, memory. It has, it has memorized every single word on six trillion web pages. That's how it finds stuff. And so we're making, we're going to add further levels of complexities and our, you know, our own minds are basically a suite of a symphony of different modes of thinking. There's deductive reasoning, there's uh, inductive, there's um, symbolic uh, uh, reasoning, there's long-term memory, there's, there's, there's dozens of different modes of thinking that go into our minds and we'll add more types and we'll invent whole new types of thinking just like we invented new ways of flying. We made artificial flight not by imitating the flapping wings of a bird, but you know, we make a flat barn door and put it on a jet engine and you, you can do flying that way. That's a new way of flying. We will invent new ways of thinking, and these will all be different than humans. And so the first thing is, is that um, we are likely to invent hundreds, maybe thousands of different species of thinking, and they're all alien to us. Um, and that's the virtue, because in this new economy, the, the real wealth, the real value is being generated by thinking different. And this is a increasingly difficult challenge when we're all connected. So, so, so the more we're connected together, the more difficult it is to think differently and the more valuable it is. And AIs actually are going to help us think differently because they fundamentally think differently. So they will be very creative, but their creativity would be a little bit different than ours, and that's actually going to be an advantage. And so um, we are going to employ them, I think, uh, these different kinds of these alien intelligences, um, sometimes to solve problems, say, in business or science that are basically beyond our own human capability of intelligence to solve by ourselves. And so we'll have a two-step process. And the first step is we're going to invent a different kind of mind that together will work with us to help solve these problems. And this idea of working, teaming up with intelligences actually has a term now. It's called a centaur. It's being used in the military. It was invented in the chess field where um, you could have a open version of a chess match where you could play as a AI, you could play as a chess master, or you could play as a team of AI and human, and that was called a centaur. And the remarkable thing is in the last four or five years that the best chess player on this planet is not an AI. It's not a human, it's a centaur, it's a team of AI and humans. And that is the model that 
we're going to have with the AIs is they are already, as I'm suggesting, smarter than we are in certain dimensions. But intelligence is not a single dimension thing. It's not like, you know, it's like a decibel getting louder like IQ. It's multidimensional. And um, they are, it's, we have versions of it already smarter than we are. But we're going to be working with them to solve all these problems. And um, much of what we do in our lives or daily work can be turned over to these other intelligences. But it, there's so much still that we don't know what we want that we are going to rely on our own selves, our own humans, to discover these new things that we want and to make these new jobs and tasks that we will then give to to the robots. And so I, I, I think the, the vision is, yeah, they're getting smarter and smarter, but there's a different kind of, of intelligence, and we're going to be working with them together to keep inventing new things that we want to be made efficient and productive, and then we give them to the bots. And so, in a certain sense, the human, the job for humans becomes to invent new jobs to give to robots. And I think an interesting point you made too is there's not going to be a single AI. Because I think that's what a lot of people imagine. Yeah, it's going to be right. sort of like the machine stops, <clears throat> sort of central computer that just does everything. But you say there's going to be multiple types of AI. Yeah, and and it's you know there will be these big AI companies whether they're Google or Amazon, there'll be something like that. There'll be some network effects where the smarter the AI is, the more people use it, the more people use it, it gets smarter and smarter. So there is this network effects, this snowballing avalanche where everybody's kind of drawn to a few um, winners in a particular kind of intelligence. And so um, there will certainly be a kind of AI that you ask questions for, and that's what it that's what it does, and so that will become the kind of ubiquitous presence, like Alexa, that's always there. That we are constantly asking questions or having it do things, that kind of personal assistant. But that we that's just one type, and even though it'll be ubiquitous and common, and everybody will will know about it, there'll be another kind of AI that maybe is really good at, at um, doing science of working with scientists and trying to uh, understand really, you know, detect these patterns of, of reality to, to understand what's going on. Um, there'll be maybe another AI that would be, um, you know, optimized for um, driving. And it could be an entirely different mixture of types of thinking. And the thing about this is, is this is, there's an engineering maxim that holds true here which is that you cannot optimize everything in a system. There's always trade-offs. Because, because of the reality of fixed times and resources and energy, that you can't make something, an AI, that's optimized in intelligence in every dimension at once. That's just an engineering fallacy. So there's always these trade-offs where this particular one will be better here, and because it's going to be a little bit less in this department and for this function, that's good. So it's like you can't have an organism in life that's optimized in survival in every direction. It's, that's just not how reality works. And the same thing with these AIs is that there will be different ones optimized for different purposes. 
for answering questions, whenever. So, so I, I, I think one of the, the mistakes is this idea of a general purpose intelligence. Human intelligence is often pointed to as a general purpose intelligence. Human intelligence is not general purpose at all. It is evolved over millions of years for our survival on this planet. When we begin to populate the, the space of all possible intelligences, and we'll do that by making different kinds of thinking in AI, and maybe someday we'll discover other ones in the universe. But as we imagine this space, we're going to find out that our intelligence is not like at the center. It's not general purpose. It's actually way out in a corner. It's, it's, it's a very specific niche kind of intelligence. And um, I think the, I, the, 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 the thing that misleads us, the, the incorrect notion is this idea of general purpose intelligence. Um, and that's just, um, that's like us believing that we're at the center of uh, the solar system and it revolves around us. That's, that's, that's a very parochial view that comes to the fact that we have not really had much contact with the other kind of intelligence. So we assume that ours is the general purpose one. Right. And but this, this will be disruptive. I mean, going back to like self-driving cars, um, truck driving is the biggest job in the United the States. The most right? common, the most common job. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's probably a truck driver listening to this right now. Um, I mean, how do, how are we going to manage when there's a bunch of laid off truck drivers because there's a, an artificial intelligence? Yeah. Well, so all those trucks that have to drive themselves, they all still need to be repaired. They all still need to be, I mean, the, the, even the AI in them has to be maintained and upgraded. Um, they're, th these are very complicated machines. And so I think our, our driving of them moves up a level. So instead of actually physically sitting behind the wheel, you are, you are, you're, you're taking care of them. You're guarding them. You are, you are, um, directing them in other ways. There's, um, uh, there's plenty, I mean, moving things around in the physical world will still require plenty of human attention because um, in the beginning, we don't know what we want and humans are the best way to find out what we want. And what robots and bots, AIs are good for is in things that have to do with efficiency and productivity. And so anything, any job, any task where productivity or efficiency is important will go to the bots. But that leaves some of the most interesting and valuable things that we do um, or have, have, aren't dependent on uh, efficiency or productivity like, like innovation, um, uh, like exploration, like human relationships. None of those are efficient. They're inherently inefficient. And that's actually what humans are, are turns out to be really good. We're really good at the inefficient stuff. We're really good at wasting time. We're really good at um, exploring dead ends and, and trying stuff. And that has nothing to do with being intellectual or having a college degree. It has a lot to do about being human. And so I think there's going to be plenty of new opportunities created, even for like a truck driver, who, by the way, aren't dumb they're smart they're uh, you know, trucks like farming has become a very high-tech um uh, industry even today um there'll be plenty of opportunities for um moving and retraining people um to these new uh, new roles and by the way 
Um, we know how, as a species, as Americans even, we know how to retrain people on a mass scale. And we do it in the military all the time. The military is fantastic at taking people who don't have many skills and giving them very high-tech skills quickly in a large, massive scale. So we have that ability. Uh, what we need is the political will to, to do that. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast growing trees right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show, get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. 
Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay. Um, so the, the next trend uh, you talked about in the book is flowing. Uh, what do you mean by, by flowing? Well, this goes a little bit back to what I was saying before about um, the, the large-scale shift from things that were monumental, fixed, solid, to things that were intangible and process and um, upgrading and, and fluid. And so um, as we move from the solid to the, to the liquid, things have to flow. And there is a sense in which um, uh, the flows become more important than, 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 than the, the fixed stocks. And so a, a book in a certain sense becomes less of a fixed printed object and more of something that might be updated over time, have footnotes or have some way you can interact with it or in some ways is, uh, is deepened by having um, hyperlinks into it um, or embedded uh, other media or ways in which it can be extracted and cut and pasted and add um, comments. And so all these things that we have in the digital world are ways in which things flow. And um, there's also the shift in the very culture away from the fixed text that we had um, in things like constitution, law books, the scripture, um, the great authors. That was the center of, of, of Western culture and in Eastern culture to some extent as well was, was the fixed page, the text on the book, the, the immobile uh, black and white precise letters on a, on a, on a, on a printed on a book. And, and we're now moved that during that time we were kind of people of the book and now we've moved to become people of the screen because the screen is now the center of our culture and the screen is this thing that, 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 that is forever changing is this kind of this, this face that has this flow of pixels across that are, that are ephemeral, that are passing, that are, that are moving, never to be the same. And so there is a sense in which instead of getting truth from the authors and authority, we have to actually kind of assemble our own truth, um, looking at this network of related facts, trying to discern the experts and the anti-experts, the fact and the anti-fact, the counterfact, where we're, it, it, it's a whole different approach to deciding what's true and what we know. And so 
that's one of the consequences of this flows. And as we, as you do businesses, as you make business, as you make products, we have to understand that the flows is where it's happening. This, the sense of constant upgrades, the sense of the fleeting ephemeral. So we move to, you know, up um, Twitter, Facebook walls, updates, flows, streaming of media, um, this is and this this is all that movement of this kind of eternal, constant, changing streams of things, and um, that's the reality of the environment that you're going to work in and make a new product in. And I mean, that sounds though uh, like, like psychologically and intellectually exhausting that we have to go to all multiple sources and figure out what is truth so i mean how i guess that goes to your next point is like filtering is going to be an important aspect of the future right i mean yeah yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Exactly. you go to the constitution like that's what the constitution says now it's like well i don't know because it, things are changing all the time i don't know what is right so 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 the filter the filter the thing about filters is like your recommendation engines and you know your amazon if you like this you like that those are all kind of filters or your um, you filter your your streams um, by choosing your friends and who you follow. But then there's also the filtering that Facebook or Twitter are, is doing because you can't see all of it. So they're filtering. And there's some the, – the, the, the one of the many dangers of – or the downsides of filtering is the fact that you can um, have something called overfitting, which is basically um, if you are only ever seeing um, that which you already like, you know, it's – People who like these things will like this one here. Um, if you're only ever seeing that, then you kind of spiral into this sort of um, cloistered, provincial, uh, parochial um, ignorance, basically. And you, and you, 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 in terms of biology, you're kind of your, you, you have a local premature optimization you you you've optimized yourself onto a peak onto the top of a mountaintop that's not the highest peak so you're stuck basically you get stuck and um so that's the danger of all this kind of filtering so a lot of people say well we need less of it and then and what i'm suggesting is no it's not the trend the trend is that there's going to be more of it and that the way you kind of compensate for this filter, these filter bubbles, and this overfitting, and this kind of premature optimization of being seeing only that which you already know you like, is actually other types of filters. So we're going to see more and more filtering. That is inevitable. What we want is smarter and smarter kinds of filters, different approaches, different ways in which they relate to us, different ways that we relate to them ways in which you try to know what's going on and and it's basically a literacy a type of literacy and understanding that everything's being filtered and we have to become good at it and um good at it means that we need kind of um tools that will take us that will show us things that we didn't know we wanted and that's sort of what we got in the old world with tv and radio where they were playing you were listening to them and there was some producer or editor who was saying well we'll do this and after this we'll do this one because i think it's cool and you weren't 
you had no control over that. And that was actually part of the benefit was that you were being told and shown new things. And so we need to reintroduce some of those kinds of dynamics into our digital filtering where we are deliberately um, encountering things that we either disagree with or didn't even know existed. And um, that's where we're going. So, so the short answer about filtering was, yeah, there's filtering. It's, we need it because there is far, far more being produced every day than we can deal with. I mean, not just and a lot of it's junk, but there's even far, far more great stuff being produced every day than we could ever pay our attention to. So we need ways to get through this abundance. And um, uh, there'll be sophisticated ways, and we can constantly um, improve. It. And there's huge opportunities for people to invent new ways to do this. Um, and uh, but we're not going to get away from having more more filtering. So that's a non-starter is thinking, well, we'll just turn off the filters. No, it doesn't work. We just have to turn on more of them. Right. That was interesting. You talked about how TV back in the 60s and 70s was you know, introducing new stuff you never thought you'd be interested in. But I thought like the early days of the web was often like that. Um, I remember surfing around. You just end up in the weirdest places. You can um, still do that now. You can. A great, there's a great page called it's like the the was a random. There's a kind of a Wikipedia of the day, a random Wikipedia page. It's like just go there and you'll find these amazing things you had no idea existed. So there are tools like that that can do that still. Um, and I think we haven't. We're not done with the idea of having the kind of the strong producer editor who's curating a, a stream of things that are outside of anything we would encounter and yet might appeal to us at some level and and so i think this idea of you know like you know the magazine or the the show or whatever it is will continue because there's still an appetite for having that really kind of informed cool curator saying you know how about this you know i know you like this one you like this one but have you ever heard of this one this is cool this is cool and so we'll follow along to some degree in some part of our lives um to that so so the, i think that that role is not gone and will continue and people will pay for that um you know in, in different different ways Okay. So uh, you also imagine a world where we're surrounded by screens, like there's going to be screens in our mirrors, on our walls, there's going to be paper that, that's actually, that are actually screens. Um, but people today have a lot of qualms about screens. Like, you know, we want to limit screen time because, you know, screens make us easily distractible, antisocial. Um, yeah. And I, I do too. I try to try to limit, but, but it's, it's, um, so there's there's another general rule about technology, which is that we tend to think of technology as anything that was invented after we were born, when in fact um, most of the technology that surrounds our lives, you and I, if we just look around wherever it is, the listener, just look around where you are, most of the technology in your life is old. It's wood, uh, you know, plywood maybe, or concrete, or um, 
electrical wires. There's a road outside, um, asphalt. There's, I mean, it's ancient in some cases. It's old technology, and that forms the bulk of the technology in life, most of it. And the new technologies is kind of a thin additional supplemental layer on top, just like most of your brain that you're listening, that you're using right now to listen to me, most of that brain is reptilian, mammalian, or older. It's um, it's doing, you know, non-conscious things. It's the bulk. The, the majority of your brain is just, you know, doing things like learning, you know, to navigate, to, to see, to breathe, to, to um, react to, you know, hunger, all those things. And that the, the, the layer that you kind of identify yourself as this very thin layer of consciousness is a thin membrane around it's, 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 it's minority. It's not, it's not a lot. And that's the same with the new technology, this digital technology in itself. It, it comes in layers and, very rarely does the old go away, so it's on top of everything that's already existing. So this new stuff is always going to be there in the context of all the other things. So we still have all these, all these other options. And so the screen, most flat surfaces, I think we're going to go to the point where basically any flat surface will become a screen because it'll become so cheap that you can you, you can make a wall out of it. You can make side of a building. You can put on clothes. But at the same time, um, you know, there'll be clothes that don't have screens on them. There'll be, um, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be areas where we go that, you know, like nature that don't have screens. And they will continue to be powerful for us and useful because they aren't that, because they're different. And, um uh, and I think even though screens will become even more ubiquitous than they are and more important in understanding who we are, um, they will always be in the context that, that we'll have time away from them that we'll come to see is as valuable as the time on to them. And so um, the reason why the Sabbath is a very powerful idea is not because with the traditional Sabbath was you didn't work one day a week it was not because work was bad. It was because work was good. It was because it was, you would keep working. And so you, you kind of, we leave the screen, not because the screens are bad, but because they're good, because they're too good. And so we, and we don't, we leave the nature. We go back to the city, not because nature is bad, but because that difference, that Delta, that shift that other way of doing and seeing the world is valuable. And that's so we will constantly add even more ways of seeing the world or doing. And the screen, ubiquitous screen is one of those, but it becomes even more valuable in the context that we have, say, wilderness or, or something in between, a garden. So I think while screens will become ubiquitous, taking time away from screens will become ever more valuable. Yeah, so you think we'll develop uh, some sort of cultural hygiene, I guess, be to, to manage those screens? Because I don't think we really have that figured out right now. Um, you know, I, I think we're doing better than we than people say. Everybody is wringing their hands over, it and everybody is sort of not happy with necessarily with their choices. But I think if you actually look 
if I, any, you know, people who have kids, uh, you know, it's like they all, all the families with kids and screens are all um, limiting screen time. I mean, in some fashion or other, and, and they have different rules. I think, I think there's a sense right now because it's all brand new. Social media is less than is two thousand days old, right? So it's like I, we shouldn't expect ourselves to have this figured out yet. It's going to take a couple of cycles, a couple of revs, to really understand what is going. And I think right now we're just kind of you know people are saying, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? And does that work? Does that work? And and yeah, that's we're we're doing this experiment right now. And I, but I think in general. Um, everybody gets the idea that yeah, you wanna you wanna limit it. It's like sugar. You just have to. It's good. You don't want too much of it. How much is too much? We don't know. We'll try it. We'll try this. We'll try that. And um, the other thing, of course, is that I, I think it's really unfair to judge a technology st strictly by how the youth use it, because youth, by definition, are excessive, obsessive. They're going to, uh, you know. Even if nothing else changed, as kids grew older, they would they would use the social media differently just because as they aged. And so we have all these dynamics going on, and I think that um, the proper response right now is to be is, is to have this as an experiment and to say I you, I don't know what the right thing is, but we'll keep trying stuff with our family or with my friends or whatever it is. Um, so I so I don't think of it as a problem i think of this as an opportunity as, as, as an experiment yeah i think it's a good point that last one because like uh, video games i played video games like all the time when i was a kid but i haven't played a video game in three years yeah I mean, yeah right, exactly where i was like totally obsessed with science fiction reading books you know had him head in the book and you know there was plenty of uh of um rants from the 18th century about the old fuddy-duddies um, complaining about kids going up and reading books by themselves. Those things is just just immoral. Just the the um, the mark of um, low class. You know, whatever it was, it was it was completely frowned upon. And you know, I was doing the same thing. I was I was uh, lost in escaping. I don't know. I was just I was in this obsessive world of science fiction. But then I didn't read any for for a couple of decades almost. I'm reading more now. Uh, I'm coming back to it. But it, it's I think um, there there's phases and technologies um, appeal at certain different phases in people's lives, and we'll sort that out as we go along. So another trend um, that I think a lot of people are seeing right now, but you think it's going to accelerate even more, is this idea of um, ownership being replaced with accessibility, right? So in, instead of owning cars, you'll summon an Uber or do a ride share or something like that. Or Yeah, and it has to do with, again, with this flowing state where, where we value mm -hmm. services more than products. And so if you can have instant access to the good that you want, anywhere you are instantly, then the question is, well, why would you want to own it? Because owning has a lot of responsibilities, like you need to back it up or clean it or store it, um, secure it, and so many other things that you don't have to do if you're just borrowing it, accessing it. And so um, in the digital realm, we, it's, much, it's very easy to kind of make that access possible where you, you know, you're connected so you can have a movie, book, or music, there's really almost no reason 
to to need to own it with some caveats and um uh you know i'm probably pretty typical where i you know basically stopped buying very many movies or music and moving to the place where books are almost the same way where you subscribe to this aggregator a netflix or an amazon or something and you have access to any book music game movie that you want anytime and then you just use it and uh, you get it back and so the question was well can that extend into the physical and 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 uber is one example uh, showing that it actually can if you can supply something on demand even a physical thing when everybody when someone some is it that that can be good or better than than owning it and so the question is well how what else could you do physically could you do clothes where you kind of don't own clothes but you subscribe to clothes and clothes come to you on a regular basis and you use them and then, and then they move on either cleaned or passed on or whatever um and so then you know um uh could you have it you know with like one hour delivery with amazon and other kinds of things you could suddenly have all kinds of things that are almost simultaneous it's like for many people having something available within an hour is actually sometimes better than what they own it might take you an hour to find something down in your basement or in your storage container or something like that and um and oftentimes the kinds of lives we have an hour is plenty of time to get what it is that we wanted um th that we maybe formerly owned and so 3d printing uh and other types of kind of instant delivery all move in this direction where um, even physical things would take on some of the attributes of being better having access to rather than owning and of course even workspaces and office spaces is uh, and you know we have lots of startups who are doing the same thing which is why own when you can just um have access to something airbnb that um is available and in many cases is superior to owning and since ownership has been so foundational in capitalism this is a big shift um there's lots of consequences that we haven't even worked through yet of what happens if people generally don't own things well obviously somebody has to own something in order to i mean there has to be whoever somebody's owning these things that we're using there may there may be less of them in total uh, but there's still ownership and the question is how is that ownership distributed and, and there's lots of issues but um that's where we're going yeah well you mentioned there there were some caveats to like have yeah. the benefit Accessibly. What would the, I mean? What, when would ownership be like? That would be better than. Yes. Yeah, so, so one of the issues, like um, for a lot of people, like say with music, movies, and books, is the issue of um, if they're taken away or, or modified. And this is, and we're increasingly seeing this. Like I don't know, uh, I've been, I'm one of the very first ever Netflix subscribers, so I've been Netflix for a long time, but it's just amazing to see things on Netflix come and go, like they're there and then they're not there. It's like, so you, um, if, if, if it really was where you had, or it was everything available all the time, that wouldn't be an issue, but the, there is an issue where things can be taken away. And if, so if you have some, um, 
if you have so, so what I'm what I'm what I think is going to happen is there'll be people who have certain areas that they really really care about and are doing something in, and then they, they want that ownership for control purposes. Um, and um, there's also the issue of like what you can do with things that you don't own, and that's another issue of um, you know. Uh, uh, what they call them terms of service and stuff where you're prohibited from modifying things um, that because you don't own them. And that's, that's something that I think maybe a cultural default. I think that's easier to imagine. Um, if, if that really does become a problem, then you would just have, you know, the, the aggregators would, would, would move to allow that, um, that ability to, to modify um, where I think right now what they say is, well, consumers aren't really demanding it. Um, so, so that's, so, so the caveat is, I think um, there is this uh, issue of removability and modification that you don't get with access, but you could. Um, so, so I think technically there's no reason why you couldn't make a system like that. Um, but it, but it does not exist right now. Yeah, with the um, I most of my reading is done on ebooks on the Kindle. But there's like a book I really 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 enjoy. I'll buy a physical yeah, copy. Sure. Right, and I think that if and, and again going back, somebody has to own these things, and so you might own something that you care about, and that may actually become the business, or you know, it's like somebody will own an apartment. If you can have Airbnb, somebody has to own it, and so there may so there'll be. Um, you know, people who like to own apartments and run them, you know, a lot of these Airbnbs are run by people who have more than one there and um, they like that. They, they, they do that. They're good at it. And so they will own that. But the rest of their lives, they may not own other things. They may not own a car, but someone else who cares about cars may own cars. And so I think um, uh, ownership doesn't disappear. I think it's just kind of distributed differently. Okay. Um, so there's, yeah, there, there's a lot of business opportunities there. Let's talk about the trends you are worried about and then and maybe kind of end on a positive note that maybe things are going to be better than we think they are. How does that sound? Yeah. So the kinds of things, uh, there's a lot of, as you can tell, I'm extremely optimistic about technology. I think there's far more opportunities than there are um, detriments. But but I, I want to say that most of the problems we have today are caused by technology from last from the past and almost all the tech, all the problems in the future are going to be caused by technologies from today so i i believe i'm a very technocentric view of the world and i believe that each new technology invention creates almost as many problems as solutions and so the question will you know like well that's just uh is that just a kind of a wash and no what we get out of that is we get um this one percent difference we get slightly more um opportunities so we get we get the opportunity to even choose that we didn't have before, and so I, I see what the gift of technology is is increasing opportunities, and that's what I believe in. But there are some, um, I mean, I think there are some choices in technology that decrease um, opportunities, and that's like weaponization. When you make a weapon out of something, you're you're using it to decrease killing, hurting other people, decreases their choices, and and, and um, I think the weaponization of new technologies like AI and robots is something that I'm concerned about. And um, I, you know, it's going to happen. 
And so one of the questions is how do we make it civil? How do we, you know, how do we make, how do we make these new rules? And so when my concern about say cyber warfare and, and that is that there's no rules right now, we don't have any agreement or consensus about what's permissible and what's not. And that goes to like hacking at the nation state. Um, the U S is, is, offensively hacking just like china and russia are but but none of them are admitting it and because there's no admission there's no agreement on well we, you can't do this and you can't do that you can't take out the electrical system and hurt or or the banks whatever and so there's no agreement and I, my, my fear my worry is that there'll be some horrible disaster or maybe several before there's any ownership and admission and movement on a consensus about what we accept and don't accept. And so I'm concerned about that, that aspect of um, the AI and stuff is, is as we weaponize them, that we be civil about it. Well, Kevin, this has been a, a great conversation. Where can people learn more about your work and your book? Um, I have a website that's based around my initials. It's kk.org, kk.org. Um, you know, I post everything there. Um, you can find more about the book, translations of the book, um, other things I've written, like a graphic novel about angels and robots. Um, I have a cool tool site where we review one cool tool a day. Um, and then on social media, I'm usually Kevin to Kelly, Kevin number two, Kelly. Um, Kevin Kelly's a very common name, unfortunately. So Kevin to Kelly on Twitter and Facebook and I, for me it's uh, mostly outgoing. I don't read much, but I do post. Um, and Google Plus is the same, I think. Um, so uh, my best way to reach me is email, which has been public for 30 years. Easy to find on my website. Well, Kevin Kelly, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the great questions, um, and I really appreciate your enthusiasm for the book. My guest today was Kevin Kelly. He's the author of the book, The Inevitable. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about Kevin's work at kk.org. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash inevitable, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs or audio production needs, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. We appreciate your support. Reviews on iTunes and Stitchers really helps us out a lot. So thank you if you do that. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. 
With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.